you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 103. As you turn there, I realize that basically nothing is normal about today. We're meeting in a different space. None of your pastors are preaching this morning, but I know some of you, some of you I don't know, but I just want, want you as a church to know that Jackie and I are both very, very grateful for you. I basically have, have grown up in this church, have received much from, from you all, and, and even from a distance, Jackie and I have, have rejoiced with you. It's my understanding that there's about a thousand kids in the nursery right now, and that is a true gift from the Lord, a blessing. And at the same, by the same token, we've also grieved with you. We've wept with you from a distance. I um, just want you to know that uh, for the sake of your comfort and that, that um, your prayers are heard, our prayers are heard by the Lord, and it's just a joy to come back into this setting and just be so warmly welcomed by all of you guys. It's just a joy to, to be able to be here and to um, minister the word to you. Psalm 103, hear the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Gracious God, your mercy is fresh this morning for us as we gather together and place ourselves in front of and beneath your word. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, Holy Spirit, work among us, that we might receive your word and believe what it says to us, to not just nod to it, but to, to wholeheartedly accept it to apply it to our lives, to make it work for us in the day day to day, Lord. We ask this in your merciful name. Amen. 
We could choose a lot of things to focus our attention on this morning as we round the corner of 2019 to begin a whole new year of 2020. In one sense, January 1st coming up will be just another day. But the new year also allows us to take a step back for a moment. And today we're taking a step back and looking at God's love and what it means for you and me as sinners. Regardless of what you may think of God's love, I can guarantee you that our understanding of the magnitude and sincerity and the depth of God's love falls short of this description that Psalm 103 gives. It's an amazing description. And our goal this morning is to set aside the box that we put God in and let Psalm 103 speak for itself and tell us about what God's steadfast, compassionate love looks like so that our hearts are shaped by it so that we grow to love God because of his love shown to us. And we grow to not just tip our hat to what he's done for us, but to open our mouths in prayer and songs of praise. What is love? And especially, what is so unique about the love of God? Is it like what a husband and wife experience together? Or is it like the bond that a family shares? Or is it being so nice all the time that we end up calling it love. We can at least be certain that love always looks like something. There's always something there to be able to identify it. And in this case, this psalm paints a glorious picture of God's love, specifically where it shines most clearly in how God deals with sinners. That's why the title of this sermon is The God Who Loves Sinners. This psalm helps us lift our eyes to see the steadfast love of God lavished on us so that then we can lift our hearts and our voices in praise to him, not just on Sundays, but every day from now on. Through studying this psalm on the doorstep of 2020, we have a chance to center ourselves on the most important display of God's love towards us, that he loved us by sending his own son to die for us. We never want to grow beyond this. We never want it to get old to us. We want to keep Jesus at the forefront by coming to grips with how significant it really is that a holy God truly loves sinners like you and me. Consider what Pastor Adam brought to our attention last week. Last week, obviously, we were talking about Christmas. We were looking in Luke 2 about the good news of a great joy that came to earth in Christ. The good news is meant to produce joy in us. And when God shows love to a people who don't deserve it, that's us, it should cause our hearts to be filled with joy. We don't have to be afraid of talking about feelings in here. In a very real sense, we should feel glad when we hear this news and when we take a a second glance at Psalm 103 or maybe a hundredth glance at this psalm. It should produce a deep-rooted joy in us from marveling at the extent with which God has loved us. Our main point this morning is marveling at God's steadfast love towards sinners is the starting point for all of our praise. I'll say that again. Marveling at God's steadfast love towards sinners is the starting point for all of our praise. The fact is that God extends to us a very particular kind of love, a love that no one else can show us, a love so unique, so undeserved, so vast, 
so genuine, so beneficial that we are left astonished at the fact that it's true. God's steadfast love or loving kindness or covenant love is particularly amazing because God has somehow found a way to love sinners without staining his own holiness. Against all odds, the the holiest of beings shows divine love to his most tainted creatures, and that's, that's us. The fact that our sinful lives have come into contact with God's holiness and we have lived to tell about it doesn't say something about us. It says something very loud about God. It should stop us in our tracks and make us wonder how it's possible for us to not be consumed by a God who cannot turn a blind eye to sin. How can this be, and how does it work out to where we end up getting the benefit of it all? Well, if our sinfulness and God's holiness were two streets, at the intersection stands Jesus Christ, who showed God's steadfast love to sinners from birth to death and risen life again. It's at that intersection of those two streets, that juncture of God's holiness and our sin, where we find that the starting point for all of our praise, because some amazing things have happened, namely, God has loved us in Christ rather than judged us in wrath. Once again, marveling, taking time to marvel at God's steadfast love towards sinners is the starting point for all our praise. David proves this point by giving us three different angles or perspectives of God's unique divine love. First, he extols the personal blessings of God's love. He shows us that God's love actually means something for us individually and personally. Then he helps us understand the compassionate nature of God's love, that God's love is full of compassion. And finally, he shows us the eternal guarantee of God's love, that his love is inexhaustible. Before we get to that first point, the personal blessing of God's love, it's worth noting that this whole chapter is a song of praise, but it kind of begins and ends with a sort of exclamation mark. You'll see in verse 1 that David, in a sort of holy pep talk fashion says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You get the sense that he's, he's talking to himself here, and he is mustering up all his faculties and enlisting them in the praise of God. He's calling out to himself, bless the Lord, praise or worship the Lord, O my soul. But why? You get the sense, why, David, why are you starting out of the gates so strong? I think David's answer is found in the rest of this psalm, and it's this. He's saying, I'm geared for praise for one reason and one reason only, because God shows steadfast love to sinners like me. Now, some of us may not feel like we're in a spot of life right now or even at a point in the day where we can join in on this joyous song. David's off to the races, and we're not quite catching up. Maybe this feels intrusive, to you, or maybe things in your life are going sideways right now and you feel like praise needs to take a back seat to God just listening to your prayers for once. Maybe you've never experienced a jolt of joy strong enough to make you to want, want to sing like this. Maybe the love of God feels like the furthest thing from you right now. Maybe you feel like you're a stranger to God's love in the first place. As uncomfortable as it might be to join in with David, it, it seems like it's impossible. We can at least listen to him and let the truths of Psalm 103 ring in our ears for a while. 
David isn't inviting us to respond with a particular emotion. He's saying, if you come with me and observe this God who loves with an everlasting and steadfast love, I assure you, your heart will be strengthened. And if you listen, you'll be right here with me wanting to praise God where you might not have wanted to before. So David begins to give us a clearer sight of God's steadfast love as his explosion of praise leads right into a picture of the personal blessings of God's love, which is our first point this morning. Here we get to see what a loving God looks like from someone who's experienced his love firsthand. David once again musters his soul to praise God, but he adds this thought, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The driving force behind our praise is recalling the blessings that have come to us through Christ. After all, Jesus is the one through whom God has most clearly loved us. We know something of God's love specifically because of what Jesus has done for us. If you're wondering about whether God has shown his love for you, consider who he sent to the cross to turn you from his enemy into his son and daughter. Think about that. If you're, if you're unsure of God's love for you, the only thing, the only step to take is to consider how, how, to what extent has God gone to show his love for us. Well, we know from our familiar John 3.16 that he loved the world in such a way that he sent the thing that was most precious to him to die for us, which was his son. So if you're looking for evidence of God's love, look no further. And the blessings that come from us being rescued by God are innumerable, aren't they? Nonetheless, David lists some of the high points. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David, it seems like he's just putting logs into this flame. He's giving his soul fuel for praise by reminding himself that it is God who has done these things. It is God who affords him all of these benefits. And make no mistake, it is God's hand that has provided these blessings, and he is the one who deserves all the glory for them. If we find ourselves in a forgetful place and we're overcome with a sense of worthlessness, a state of feeling unloved, or thoughts of being forgotten ourselves, we would do well to follow David's lead here to rehearse what God has made possible for us, to not let the evil one insert lies, but to combat them with the truth, and this is the truth of God's love towards you. You can always go to Ephesians 1, chapter 1, where there's a big list of blessings that come with salvation in Jesus that are more than we could ever hope for. My guess is if, if you sat down and made a list of all that God has blessed you with as a Christian, you'd start in the same place as David. You'd start with forgiveness. Forgiveness. Full, complete, undeserved forgiveness. Don't let that word grow stale in your heart this morning. It is the first and sweetest blessing that we experience when we trust in Christ. The amazing thing is that David gets this. David's living hundreds of years before Christ, but he is a witness to the fact that God lovingly forgives sins. Just look at David. David, the hero of Israel who killed the giant Goliath, 
who has ruled as a faithful and God-fearing king is also the man who kidnapped the woman, made her his wife, attempted to cover up her pregnancy, and had her husband murdered when the cover-up didn't work. Do you think David knows what it's like to be guilty and to be afraid of a holy God who punishes sin? I think yes. And yet, he also knows exactly what it's like to be forgiven of even the worst sins. So if you're sitting there wondering, I don't know if God can cover me for this. I don't know if this is forgivable. Look at David's interaction with the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. After realizing how guilty he was for taking Bathsheba as his wife and killing Uriah, David says to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. It finally sets in what he's done, how guilty he is for it, and that he's likely to be punished for it by God. And yet, Nathan, the prophet, knowing God, knowing the heart of God, and knowing David's sincere repentance, says this, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Could you imagine what that felt like for David? To realize, number one, that he had done an awful thing in God's sight, Many awful things mounting up. But number two, even as he realizes that and repents of it, God doesn't punish him the way he should be punished. He offers him forgiveness. David knows firsthand that God is a forgiving God. Friends, do you know what it's like to be forgiven? Have you accepted the fact that you can't clean yourself up or fix yourself? Have you believed in the fact that God can do that very thing for you if you stop trying to do it yourself and you ask him to forgive you? Your sin is enough to invite his wrath against you. But being forgiven starts with taking a good hard look at the wrongs we have committed against God in order to turn from that sin and trust in Jesus. Then and only then, Will we know the sweetness of forgiveness that God offers in Christ? That is the only requirement, repentance and faith. For those who know what this forgiveness brings, taking a good hard, hard look back at our sin is exactly what will make us all the more grateful for the fact that God counts none of it against us if we believe in Jesus' sacrifice for us. When we, when we wrestle with this, when we wrestle with the reality of our sinfulness, we experience the joy of seeing that sin paid for at the cross by the blood of the Lamb and left in the grave when he rose from the dead. Forgiveness. I like to think of forgiveness as the nursery of our praise. I think of a, a plant nursery. This is where it all starts. Every song from our hearts, every prayer of thankfulness that we offer, every hallelujah, every good and worshipful thought of God first started growing when we realized that we had been forgiven of all of our sins. That's sort of the seed that's planted that just begins to grow and grow. Realizing that you are forgiven of all your sins is synonymous with realizing my biggest problem has been dealt with in Christ. The problem that I couldn't resolve myself, the problem that only God can solve, has been solved in Christ. Psalm 32, 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And we know this to be a sweet truth. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. 
in this list of benefits that David is going on, blessing number one is a whopper of a blessing because it sums up the sort of love that God has for us. But we w- it would be sufficient if God had stopped there, if he had offered us the forgiveness that we didn't deserve and stopped. But he hasn't stopped. He doesn't just heal our spiritual condition. In verse 3, he is also the one who offers physical relief through healing. This verse isn't saying that God heals all of our ailments in this life. Many of you can attest to that fact, and that that's not the case. But I hope you can also attest to the fact that if you have ever experienced healing in any form, it was the Lord who has mercifully done this, whether from a cold or cancer. Even as some of us suffer under illness, whether momentary or chronic, he will one day deliver us completely from physical suffering. He alone is able to do so, and he offers this blessing to his children as a form of his love. David also says that God is the one who redeems your life from the pit. What he means here is that God is responsible for delivering you first from death, but also from hopeless circumstances. Have you ever been depressed to where you felt utterly hopeless? Are you there right now? David is well aware that it was God who delivered him from the hand of Saul, as we should be aware that God rescuing us from despair, hopelessness, or destructive circumstances is an act of his steadfast love. It's not a matter of chance. It's a matter of mercy. The one who can save us from that, from, from something that our own hands can't, can't steal us from, can't take us from, is definitely worthy of praise. Not only does God forgive, heal, redeem, he also crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. It's the kind of love that goes basically 10 steps further. God saves sinners, yes, 100%. Then he figuratively places upon them crowns of steadfast love and mercy. The most royal or noble part of your life has nothing to do with your accomplishments. Hear that again. The most valuable, the most wonderful part of your life has nothing to do with your accomplishments. It has everything to do with the fact that God has graciously chosen us to be recipients of his steadfast love and mercy. What that means is the most important thing about you is that you have experienced the saving love of God. There is nothing more important than that. The most important thing about you is that you have experienced the saving love of God. Friends, we don't, we don't often think of ourselves this way, but when we set aside things of worldly importance like our success in our careers or at raising our family or our skill in this or that area, we can finally see that the most wonderful part of our life is that God has found a way to love us completely. We don't deserve that. God has broken basically all the rules of people getting their dues. After all, no enemy of God, which is what we were, no enemy of God should be crowned with God's best. Let us sink in this morning that God should pour out his wrath on our heads because we are guilty, we stand guilty. But instead of pouring out his, his just wrath, his punishment for sin, He gently and joyously, not begrudgingly, but joyously places upon you a crown of loving kindness. Marveling at this love is the start of all our praise. And hopefully David's words 
begin to whet our appetite for worshiping the one who has loved us like this because no one else has. No one else can. Only God can. According to David, we haven't even come close to exhausting the blessings that God supplies. God also satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God gives good things to those he loves so that we may be satisfied because God delights in giving good gifts to his children. And this is where we have to start to think about how we truly understand who God is. It's easy to get caught in in a bunch of snares, in the snare of thinking that God is always disappointed with you to the point where he's just waiting for you to straighten up. It's easy to think that bad things happen to you because God dislikes you rather than loves you fully. It's easy to think that he's a penny pincher who withholds more than he gives, and he seems to withhold what you need right at the wrong time. It's easy for an invisible God to feel utterly distant. It's easy to think that God does not have our ultimate good in mind now or for eternity. Friends, none of these describe the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is generous. He's kind. He's forgiving, and he's also powerful to satisfy us. We look everywhere else for satisfaction and things that will enliven us. We think success at whatever we put our hand to do will do the trick. We think another dollar bill will quench our hunger for satisfaction. We're looking for it in all the wrong places. I've been so struck by this the last last few weeks. Hear what God says in Isaiah 55. Come. That's That's the first word of the chapter. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. This is God's posture towards you. He is open-armed, inviting you to come, and he knows that he is the only one that can truly satisfy you. If you look to him and not elsewhere. This leads us to another angle that David provides in this psalm, which is point number two, the compassionate nature of God's love. The compassionate nature of God's love. David takes a step back and looks at God's loving kindness through the lens of the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation. The beautiful thing about looking back at Israel is that we catch a glimpse of a God who loves in the context of a dedicated covenant relationship. In a way, God has tied himself to his people like a little baby is tied to its mother through an umbilical cord. That cord is the only channel through which good nutrients are delivered to the child, just as a covenant relationship with God constantly supplies us with endless amounts of love. If you're not connected to God in this way, you don't receive the benefits of his love. In verse 6, David offers a broad statement to help us understand the scope of God's love. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. At face value, it seems like David has stopped 
talking about God's love for a moment, but that couldn't be further from the truth. What David is indicating is that God's love cannot be found without his righteousness and justice at work. What that means is that God's love is a righteous love that is powerful enough to also ensure justice. It would mean very little if God was infinitely loving, but he could not enact justice. He is both fully loving and fully just and righteous. We long for justice. We long for everything to be made right and for an end to suffering. Have you ever felt wronged or pressed down and treated unjustly because of your social status, your skin color, your disposition and personality, your priorities of church and family, or your love for Jesus? God, in his compassion, sees that. He doesn't ignore that. And the good news is we have a God whose love for us will one day right every wrong and who will not let oppression in any form remain. In the meantime, as we experience those sorts of pressures, we must follow Peter's instruction in First Peter 2.23 and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. The example David uses of God having his eye set towards the oppressed is the nation of Israel during the time of Moses. So we even have to go back beyond Psalms, backwards in, in our Bibles. In an act of love, God showed his might over Israel's captors and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was after this that Israel found out exactly what kind of God this was who had freed them. God describes himself in Exodus 34, 6 as merciful gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, which is quoted here in verse 8. God revealed himself as these four things to Israel at a very particular time. Do you remember? I think, I think when God says this to them makes, makes all the difference in the world for us this morning. God revealed himself, yes, as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he did so just after the people followed Aaron's lead in worshiping the golden calf, saying that the calf represented the gods who had taken them out of captivity in Egypt when it was God alone who did so. That's the moment when God decided to tell them that he was gracious in the midst of blatant idolatry in the wake of their sin. And the truth is that we are no better than Israel. We can put ourselves in Israel's shoes here. It was when while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for the ungodly. So yet again, God has shown himself not just marvelous, but consistent in the fact that when we were seemingly beyond saving, that's when he intervenes and shows his gracious, slow to anger, merciful love to us. We aren't any more deserving of God's love than Israel. But one thing is sure, God has not held back his love from us at a time when we needed, the, needed it the most. He is worth praising with our whole being because he loved us when we, just like Israel, were furthest from him and should have been kicked out rather than welcomed in. It's this backdrop of God's acts towards Israel that David says perhaps the sweetest and most astonishing words in the whole psalm. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. 
This is simply a fleshing out of the proof that God really is slow to anger, gracious, merciful, and abounding in that glorious, steadfast love. God's disposition towards his people, towards us as the church in the new covenant, is that of patience and forgiveness. I just think it could be very different than that, but it is consistent with God's character that he is forgiving and patient towards us. God doesn't hold a grudge against our sin, and he doesn't just forgive us on the off chance. No, God is a forgiving God. One facet of his love is that he delights in forgiving our sin, in making us clean before him, and in treating us like his own sons and daughters. He delights in doing that. I think it's wonderful that David can't get too far in this psalm without coming full circle back to forgiveness again. It's like he's stuck on forgiveness, which is exactly how we should be. Look at how beautiful verse 10 is. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. Let's just come back every Sunday, read that line, and we'll sing for a while because that is absolutely breathtaking news. David, are you telling me that the God who is righteous and who cannot overlook sin, the God who is utterly holy, the God who cannot sin himself and must punish sin, that he does not give me what all my faults deserve or repay the iniquities that I've heaped up. Oh, what glorious news that is. This should lead us to join with the prophet Micah, who says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. God is overjoyed to forgive your sins if you would ask him for it. He wants you to feel that relief, but not as a throat lozenge that comes and goes, but as a lasting source of life-giving water for your soul. Can you see why David is so thrilled about this at this point in the psalm? The more we understand and marvel at this sort of unique love God has for us as sinners, the more material we have to praise him. Think of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. May you, Ephesians, us redeeming grace, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The truth is, is that we need strength and supernatural help to attempt to wrap our minds and hearts around how vast the love of God is. But my prayer this morning is that we'd at least try so that we can praise our God all the more joyously, not just in church, but in every facet of life. When you sit down to eat dinner, he is worthy of praise for saving you. When you walk into school, the same is true. When, you, when your work grows sour, he is worthy of praise because he has loved you with an everlasting love. When you're driving Route 5, he is worthy. And we can start praising him by beginning to marvel at his love everywhere we go. We can ask him for help to be reminded so that we can marvel and praise him. We're going to press deeper into these verses to try to do exactly that, to see what God not dealing with with us according to our sins actually looks like. Okay, we know he hasn't dealt with us according to our sins, but what does it look like? How is it then, we asked this earlier, that God who is just, some of you are putting the equation together, there's a God who is just, who cannot overlook sin, who must deal with sin, how is it that he does not deal with us 
in line with that sin, the sin that we are responsible for, the sin that we are culpable for. Just, just let that sit. That, that seems like it's irreconcilable. The wages of sin is death, right? So how has God not paid us our wages and let us off the hook? Well, the reason is because he paid Jesus with the wages of death. And he paid us with righteousness and eternal life. Jesus Christ alone makes it possible for God to overlook our sin. How? Because God dealt with his perfectly righteous son according to our sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How sobering it is to come face to face with the fact that Jesus gave his life that we might live. But how precious it is that he has done so willingly and joyously. And then he sealed the deal by rising from the dead. Friends, if you have not trusted in Jesus to experience this sort of love, you remain responsible to try to deal with your own sin. You must pay if you have not trusted Christ's payment. And God has made it clear, you can't pay. You cannot pay that price tag. Only Jesus can do so for you. Trust in his ability to forgive you and make you clean in the eyes of God so that God can receive you as his son and daughter. A few short lines from a poem, The Mover, in the book Valley of Vision helps capture what it looks like to be taken aback by God treating us so graciously. And this has been near and dear to my heart, been a prayer many times for myself. The author says this, O Lord, I am astonished at the difference between my receivings and my deservings. So it's a little bit older English, but we'll break it down. Oh, Lord, I am astonished at the difference between basically what I received and what I deserve. I am astonished at the difference. I'm astonished at the difference between the state I am now in, right now, and my past gracelessness, between the heaven I am bound for and the hell I merit, the hell I deserve. Oh, Lord, I am astonished. I am thoroughly astonished at the difference between what I've received and what I deserve between the state I am now in and my past gracelessness, between the heaven that you have bound me for and the hell that I deserve. I am astonished. This God, his steadfast love is great, and it makes all the difference in the world. And I sit here reading Psalm 103, gazing into my Bible and marveling that you have forgiven a wretch like me because you have taken away what I deserve to die for. And you have given me what never should have been mine, righteousness, eternal life, adoption as your son, and so much more. Can you say that you're astonished this morning at God's love for you? Can you join in this song with David? I pray that this ignites your heart with the joy that comes from being forgiven by the very God who has loved you with a steadfast, forgiving love. The next three verses paint a picture of God's relationship to us as sinners that should leave our jaws hanging in awe. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
These three analogies that David uses assure us that God's love is inexhaustible, that his forgiveness is irrevocable, and his compassion is near. David uses the polar opposites of the heavens and the earth to try to explain the extent of God's love. God's love, it's as far as the heavens are above the earth. Today, that would be like saying God's love is so great, it's like the distance from the ground between your feet to the border of the universe. After that, he uses another pair of polar opposites to describe how far God parts us from that condemning sin. We are so far parted that there is no chance of being reunited with the wrongs that we've committed, just like the East and the West never truly meet back up. If you are given to thinking that your sin seems bigger than God's love for you at the cross, come and be reassured by this verse. Believe what it says that God has truly separated you from that sin and will not use it against you anymore. Hear that. Be certain of that. Come, come here for hope. God also loves as a compassionate father. He loves those for whom he died. And you know what? There's more. David describes God's compassion in a very particular way in verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust God is well aware that you are a finite, sinful human. Your bodies are only so strong. Your mind can only take so much. You can only handle so much. And on top of that, you're a sinner too, pulled this way and that way by sinful desire. He knows that about you. And he treats you not as, not as uh, someone other than a son, but he treats you as weak and in need of a compassionate father. He takes into account our frailty, and he, he doesn't leave us just because we still sin or fail. He doesn't take advantage of the fact that we're weak and frail. He takes it into account and uses that as a tool for his love. Now, I just I threw, have this note in here. It just says real talk, and the reason being is because the Lord has taught me much about this in particular in the last few months. I don't know about, about you, but it has certainly been true for me that I have not viewed God this way in particular. I've always seen, for whatever reason, I, I don't know why, I've always seen God as someone who is shaking his head at me, just waiting for me to finally come up to par, finally be able to meet some sort of invisible standard that I'm still not meeting yet. Um, and yet, this has totally changed my perspective of how he looks at me as his son. He did not die for me to make me his son and still shake his head at me. He died in order to view me as such, but also to say, I am pleased with you because I am pleased with Christ. Not because of anything you have or haven't done. I am fully <coughs> pleased with you. You have nothing to um, prove. You have nothing to uh, show yourself worthy of because you weren't worthy in the first place. And yet, he is compassionate like a father towards me and towards you. And whatever frame you have put God in before in your mind, remove it and let this psalm speak for itself. It says so clearly, God is compassionate. And we believe otherwise most of the time. He is compassionate. 
All you fathers and husbands who know you're supposed to lead your family, but find that it's all you can do to have a meaningful conversation with at least one of your kids and maybe your wife at the dinner table. There is grace for you because God does not look at you with scorn, but compassion. All you mothers who are wearied by caring for one or more helpless small people, God knows that you can't run on all cylinders 24-7 and that you need physical and spiritual rest. That's his compassion. For those who are crippled by making mistakes at work or fulfilling a certain trajectory for this stage of your life, you are not a failure in his eyes. You are a child on whom he has compassion. For those who long to be married, for those who have suffered great loss, for those who are uncertain about the future, whatever is troubling you or wearying you right now, please know this, that God looks on you with compassion. He doesn't blow you off as if they shouldn't be having these problems. No, he looks with compassion. He is aware of those things, and he's not expecting flawlessness because his son was flawless in your place. Now, he is calling us to growth and holiness and faithfulness, but he's not a cruel master about it. He knows your frame. He is compassionate like a father. He is patient with us as we bumble and stumble and learn and ask for help and take small steps in growing to look more like Jesus. Now, the second point has been a little longer than the other two because this song gives us a sort of wide-angle lens of the love of God. It tries to take in as much of it as possible and put it on paper in as brief a way. And I, I can honestly say that before being introduced to this psalm in, in particular, I don't think I've ever tried to swallow so much of God's goodness, his kindness, and the lavishness of his special love for his children all at once. It is a, it is a heavy dose, but... It's sweet. This psalm is like drinking from a fire hose, but the more we stay here, the more it really starts to set in that only a God can love like God has loved us. Truly, we don't deserve such astonishing loving kindness. We have so much room to grow in learning about how God has dealt with us, which means there are also a whole lot more praises yet to be sung. But David's not done yet. He keeps piling it on, in verses 15 through 22, I won't spend as long here, but it's worth looking at God's love from one more angle, the eternal guarantee of God's love. This is simply a contrast to show the duration of God's steadfast love. Man's lifespan is set against God's eternal love. Man's life, even if it's 100 years, is so short compared to the everlasting lifespan of God's love. In a world where we see love falter, fail, or run dry, there is hope in God's love outlasting anything that could ever threaten it. From everlasting to everlasting, from eternity to eternity, from generation to generation, God's love remains focused on those who fear him. Now we've seen that phrase a couple of times, on those who fear him. Those who fear him is a phrase used to describe God's people. And for those of us in Christ, we are his covenant people. But we do not come to be those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments in verse 18 on our own. God has graciously brought us into relationship with him and has made us his chosen people who subsequently fear God, keep his covenant, and remember his commands. The trouble comes if you look at the psalm and wonder if it applies to you. Now, for some, the evil one would love for you to think that the benefits of a God who loves his people aren't available to you. But 
if, if, read big, big if, if you have trusted in Christ, he has made it possible for you to be a part of God's covenant people. However, if you continue to shut your eyes and your heart to Christ's provision of escape from God's wrath against your sin, then you cannot claim any of the promises of this psalm. This psalm is essentially off limits. All the benefits we talked about in the beginning of forgiveness and redemption are only available to those who would receive Christ in faith. If you haven't, sadly, you cannot sing with David unless you see Christ's sacrifice as God's greatest act of love for your sake, and that it is, the pinnacle of God's everlasting love. Once you see that price tag and realize that you cannot pay it, but Christ has paid it for those who believe, then and only then can you read the psalm and say, all these blessings God has graciously poured out on me. To close this beautiful psalm, David confesses that God is the Lord of all, which means that he can guarantee that his love will not fade or fail, leading to a final call of praise in the last three verses. But this time he calls out to the angels and all of creation to join him as if he needs help to lift this praise up. His last words are, are beautiful in light of the rest of the psalm. He reverts back to calling himself to praise. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. At the beginning, it seemed like he was all by his lonesome, but now he's just a grateful voice in the choir, singing about God's steadfast loving kindness displayed to him. And that's us. Voices in that choir, one among many, singing about the worth and greatness of God in Christ. All of David's praise and all of our praise is founded upon taking the time to marvel at the way God has shown his steadfast love to the undeserving. My prayer today is that we'd be able to join with W.S. Plumer, who says this as his last commentary note on Psalm 103, which is a very fitting last note for us. He says this, Whatever others do, let me do service to my God. Whatever others do, let me love my Redeemer. Whatever others glory in, let me glory in the Lord. This is my first and greatest business. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Bless you, O Lord. For you have, you, you have shown a kind of love to sinners that is unmatched and is worthy of eternal praise. You have given us your Son, handed him over that you might receive us. You have forgiven our sins, Lord. You offer us so many blessings through the avenue of Christ, only through him. And I pray that we would cast ourselves on him into faith, that we would trust that, that you are not stingy, that you are not uh, disappointed with us, but you are fully pleased in Christ and you are ready and generous to give us all things, to give us mercy and grace in time of need, to give us um, whatever help we cry out for from you the one who satisfies us, and the one who is worth marveling at from this day forward. Lord, bless your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.